Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Today's guest is Damian Wilson, Hamill Family Chair in Wine Business at Sonoma State University. And we're going to be continuing our discussion about marketing to millennials in the wine industry. So how then do millennials buy wine? You know, talking about if they if they aren't going to be the ones who go and and pay a high tasting fee and join the wine club. And what does that imply about the status quo of how wineries sell wine today via wine clubs or mailing lists? Does that need to change? Honestly, I can't see how it can continue to, to go the way it, uh, way it uh, does. Uh, there's a common uh, misperception in the wine industry that we need to focus on getting better loyalty and customer base. The reality is uh, from research done across the world, across categories, across time periods, is that without customer acquisition, your brand's going to die. So, you know, I mean, even with your loyal customers, you can have a high degree of loyalty, but it's often symptomatic of a poor customer acquisition process rather than being representative of a, of a really strong strategy. The other thing is if you're focusing on things like loyalty, how much more loyalty can you get from customers? They can't buy much more. They can't drink much more. All you're really trying to do is, um, is trying to steal market share off another brand, which may or may not work, but that's still customer acquisition. And the reality is you, you have to focus on getting new customers. And so the difficulty I see is that the situation has to almost crash before wine producers feel compelled to initi- initiate change. There's not much taste or taste for the idea about, um, about doing away with, uh, with tasting fees and uh, uh, relying on wine club and DTC as being, a, uh, as being the model. Unfortunately, millennials have at least shown an interest in adding wine to their alcohol of choice categories, but they're not all that keen on paying a fortune for something that they don't value very highly. So the, the current price reduction is broadly by a, you know, a greater than $10 a bottle at a retailer or a glass at a restaurant. And that's really a steep point of entry for new players. So for millennials who are much more careful with their spending, that ends up being a pretty high price to pay. And so even for those who are dipping their toes into the wine market, a visit to a winery can quickly lead to disappointment or disillusionment when a $100 budget for a day trip will barely cover gas money, one tasting and food for one person. So what's the chance that you can get them to sign up for wine clubs and mailing lists? You're kidding yourself. It's not going to happen, at least for this generation, until they develop a degree of uh, financial security. And by that stage, hard seltzer could have already converted them, or they may have found a heap of craft breweries that they really like instead. So I think the problem is, is that um, that reliance on the wine club, it sounds like a fairy tale based on the golden days of the 90s and early 2000s. But that's a that's an industry problem, right? I, what I hear you saying is the industry needs to have a lower priced entry point to convert millennials into the category. But as an individual brand, my brand might be a $50 brand or a $250 Napa Cabernet. I still need to acquire my new customers and those are the people who can afford to buy it. And as a group or cohort, millennials haven't quite hit that wealth accumulation point yet to be there. Yeah, that's that's the main problem. The thing is, even though millennials have come in at a slightly higher price point. They haven't been drinking, you know, the Lancers Rosé or anything like that. That was, you know, a starting point for, for earlier, for earlier uh, wine-consuming groups. So you've, you've got a, a real challenge to get someone to spend $50 on something they barely have experience with, pretty big ask. 
You know, I mean, that's a, if that's the entry point where well, you're comparing that to other alcohols, you know, I mean, you're looking at the, uh, the retail price of hard seltzers. It's about half the, um, uh, you know, half the cost of whatever a, a bottle of wine might be. And you've got the per unit and you've, that's a category which has absolutely gone gangbusters and not just in the last 12 months, but it was already growing rapidly in the, um, in the two years prior. So if you look at the example there, they're now that, that category is fracturing as they're starting to develop elements of premiumization or bleeding off into categories where there's, um, where there's more growth. Wine has progressively kind of worked its way up, but people progress in a stepwise remote process. You can't just jump in at 50 bucks as a starting point. It's too high a price point for people to get into. So if, to get someone to $50, $50 as a price point, you've got to find out where they're coming in to begin with and how they work their way up. And essentially it takes, again, time and uh, positive reinforcement during um, consumption experiences for people to kind of work their way up from a $10 to 15 to 20 They might go from 20 to 30 but the thing is unless they've actually had those initial starting points out and they can see why a $15 bottle of wine or how a $15 bottle of wine is better than a $5 bottle of wine. But if they don't do that, they're never going to get into 50 and, and trying to get into 250 is a commercial suicide. So I'm curious because you've mentioned hard seltzer a couple of times, like the white claw phenomenon. Like when I look at, like as I grew up, there's there always something like that, whether it's Bartles and James or, or Zima or the hard lemonades. Is the hard seltzer different to this generation than those previous iterations in the past? Or is it, or is it, is it just another you know, similar experience where it'll, it'll be here for a few years and then fade away and something else will take place. I honestly think that I'm going to, I'm either going to come across as prescient or an idiot with them, with the response to that. You know, whenever you, whenever you try and predict anything, you can be pretty much a hundred percent sure that you're going to be wrong to some degree. I'm a pretty keen believer that the, uh, the hard seltzer movement, there'll be a shakeout for sure. To what degree, I don't know, but uh, will the category disappear altogether? I doubt it. I think we've always had something there, you know, whether it's Bartle St. James, as you said, there's always been something that sticks around. And I think what will end up happening is that there will be a collection of, um, of uh, brands and products that, um, that look good and may stick around and may carve out a, um, a portion of the market where they do uh, end up having a, um, having a loyal following. But I think in general, you probably see a lot of the smaller producers get um, either bought up by their larger players and the category will settle down at some stage and will it disappear i'm i'm of the belief that it, um, uh, it, it's probably run a lot of its course at this stage i mean you know it might grow 100 percent in the next 12 months and put egg on my face but i don't think there's a lot of growth because there's a lot of there's a lot of fracturing already happening in the category which is suggestive that they've probably hit the um uh, the market share expansion process and they're looking at trying to um, to bleed out into different areas you know i mean hard kombucha is one of the categories that's grown the fastest based on percentage growth in the last um in the last six months so i think you're already starting to see that um, uh, the, the wind um, falling out of the sails of that category will it last indefinitely i don't know i mean that's 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 hard to tell. I don't think it's got a long-term future that it will uh, end up being an established part of the, um, uh, you know, the, the category. I think it'll probably, it'll wane a little, but to what degree and over what time frame, I'm not sure. It, but to touch base again on the, the price point issue, uh, wine does have a lot of entry level price points. If you go to Trader Joe's or you're buying a product uh, from the Gallo, Gallo group or the wine group, there's a lot of things where, you know, a full bottle of two buck chuck is, well, now two fifty or something like that or three dollars. But, you know, it's uh, that's six servings of alcohol for the most part. Right. So similar to like a six pack of, of beer and much cheaper. 
Is it just that those low-end brands aren't messaging and targeting the millennial market as well? That's that's my belief too, yeah. I'm pretty sure that those brands, they're at a price point where the millennial uh, kind of struggles and uh, and believes that it's more product that is consumed for volume of consumption. And we've made a couple of references earlier on about the, um, about the social and environmental and health issues are certainly more salient to millennials as well. And I think that there's some, um, uh, because there are also fewer competitors at that price point, there tend to be a limited range of choice. There's that, um, uh, the, uh, the mirage of choice by having 300 wines in front of you, of which you only choose one anyway. But having a small number of um, uh, competitors, also in those price points, you tend to have a lot more large volume formats. It's not just a, a you know, $2.50 buck chuck, but you've also uh, got, you know, whether it's the Carla Rossi's, but then you're starting to look at bag in box as well. You know, I mean, that, that category has grown in volume recently as well. And so you've got this smaller number of larger packages at that price point that just conveys the image that it's all about the volume of consumption. And that's something that uh, the millennials are, are a lot more resistant to adopt. So they've tended to come in at a higher price point anyway. And it might just be, it might need to be under uh, under $10 or around $10 or 10 to 15, even at the tasting room. But you've got to have some sort of laddering product there that can help the, um, uh, help the consumer A, Come in the millennial come into the category, but also have um, positively reinforcing experiences, which help them uh, want to expand and spend a bit more money to move their way up the curve. My assumption is also that the the millennials are maybe more aware that one brand actually owns multiple multiple things on the shopping in the supermarket aisle because they have their phone and they can just look something up and, and understand that it's just like that's a marketing ploy that worked maybe for a previous generation but with them they're they're kind of hip and wise to it yeah i think that's true they're, i mean they're very informed I, I i remember telling my students every semester i point out to them that they are they have to be careful not to get complacent because they have information at their fingertips when i was going through university i would have to write up a an interlibrary loan to get a copy of an article that someone once wrote 10 years ago that wasn't available in my library, you know, and you'd wait weeks before you'd get that. In the modern environment, they've got instant access to all of that information, which makes them a bit complacent because they're less discerning on the quality of the information they get. They, they're very quick to kind of find something and go, yes, that's it. And so you're finding What's happening is the bigger producers, they're very much aware that if they have multiple brands, that they are getting away from that idea about hiding that ownership from previous generations and they're wanting to embrace it more. And with doing so, they are aware that they need to have the attention on them that the millennials are more receptive to. So, I mean, you're seeing, you know, whether it's some treasury wine estates or, or Gallo or, you know, you're looking at the wine group and they're coming up with them with different brands, they're, they're less keen to shy away from that image because millennials are a bit more receptive to it as long as the the uh, the umbrella brand actually has a good reputation or is working to them to improve that before they expand into um, into an offshoot of some description. So in terms of jumping to hospitality for a second, because we've touched upon it a little bit earlier, people generally have said that millennials care about experiences. And um, it's not lost on me that some of these bespoke experiences and price are, are kind of indirect, you know, are really heavily related to each other. So I'm curious if you had a couple tips, if you're a winery, if you owned a winery and you wanted to target and create brand loyalty with millennials, what are some best practices? What should they be doing differently? Or examples. Or examples. Yeah, I've, I've got a. I was going to say I've got a few examples that I can uh, I can I can bring up. I mean, I've said it a number of times. I just don't think wine's very good at um, uh, at enacting 
the practices they need to to uh, to adopt a um, a new category. You know, I mean, wines are very good, and Australia has been a really good example of this. That basically, when they find something that works, just to milk it to the nth degree until it's too late, they you know, and they're forced to make a change. And I mean, that you go back to Australia, they had sunshine in a glass back in the '90s, and then when that started to wane, uh, the Critter Brands idea came out, and then red wine from Australia was all about Shiraz until until that became about you know as, as popular as a visit to the dentist. So you've got them. I think wine in general is a mirror of that. They find something that works and then it gets milked, like the, the hospitality experience. So, I mean, think of it this way. Wine just has to be, the simple number of reality is it has to be better at the digital era. Uh, wine's not very good at that. Um, wine's very good at talking about the quality of the product. They're very good at talking about the authenticity of their, um, their production processes and the reflection of terroir in the glass from what they're producing. Now, the, the sad reality is unless you can get that wine into someone's glass, they're never going to be able to ascertain what that message is telling them. So every time a wine producer says to you, but it's all about our quality, I'm going to turn around and say, if you can't sell that bottle, it doesn't matter how good the thing is. And that's really where they're getting lost. I mean, the message is getting mixed up. There's the focus on what's in the glass instead of how we get it to the glass in the first place. So think for yourself. I mean, you've got a generation, millennials in particular, grew up in the digital age. They are absolutely connected to their devices. They are on social media in all sorts of different areas. How many um, uh, wine producers can you rattle off the top of your head have actually even got a TikTok account? My son, he's Gen Z, but my son is mid-teens. I mean, he's 16 years old. He's got more than 100,000 followers on TikTok. I oh. looked online yesterday to try and find any um, uh, any wine producer that has even any sort of um, uh, any sort of following on any of the, um, the social media accounts. You know, I mean, my son's developed a, um, a following like that through 12 months of just playing around and producing videos that people seem to like watching. They're not even long. They don't take them long to put together. Wine producers are constantly talking about themselves. And when was the last time you saw a social media post by a wine producer that wasn't about themselves? I mean, I, I can't think of too many. In saying that, most of the bigger brands have a system for monitoring and responding, and that's a start. I've got a number of cases where I've gone down, I've travelled to different wine regions, and during my journey, I'll get my wife to drive and I'll get on social media to the regions I'm going and start posting out them madly using hashtags, tagging wineries and all that sort of stuff. And the number of times I've got a response from a winery, even throughout the entire vacation, is really, really minimal. It's a sad indictment. They're just not using the monitoring tools to look at when their name is being mentioned, what sort of mentions are going online, those sorts of things. It's a real shame. At least the bigger producers, they tend to be relatively slow to get back, but they do get back and it might just be, it might take a day or two, which may not be ideal. So they're not responsive enough is a starting point. So they're not engaged. They're not responsive enough. I've got a few examples which I've put in mind from the smaller producers, and I think a really good example is Jason Haas from in general, sorry, in particular, and Tablas Creek in general. They're really good examples of what producers do. Now, in saying that, I think they're also quite focused on themselves and their brands, but they're incredibly responsive. To this day, he was the one who responded the fastest of any producer anywhere. I was on my way down to um, to uh, San, Luis, uh, San Luis Obispo and going through Paso, and I tagged Tablas Creek saying, coming through the area, uh, is your tasting remote? But he got back within 10 minutes, and that was, I thought, uh, brilliant. There was, and now I, I, in that trip, 
I tagged 27 different wineries across their various different platforms. Only two got back to me, and Tablet Creek was one of them. And I was in that um, in that region for a week. So, so you know, there's just there's not enough being done to get back to consumers. So they first of all need to change their message to be something that resonates with the consumers, and that's basically anything in addition to their wine that millennials will have an interest in. That could be anywhere, anything. Keep it authentic, keep it um, keep it real, keep it focused. Make it personal. It's social media because it's social. So that's that's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, they need to have monitoring, and this can be automated, so that, you know, so that the brand manager gets messages, gets notified when something comes into their account so that they can get back to them. Even if they're using chat box to auto-reply and say someone will get back to you within X period of time on whatever the platform is, that's better than doing nothing. So those are the two things I'd, I'd suggest. Um, of the few examples I'd recommend from smaller producers, I'd also say uh, a global example, Nicole Relais of Chen Bleu in, um, in France, in Ventoux, Provence, is a good example from Europe. And she also, she has a fairly responsive site, doesn't have a great following, but an individual who I think has done uh, really well at um, uh, remaining uh, relevant and focused on the consumer is Randall Graham. His, uh, his audience is generally really good, but he's also the first one to admit that he doesn't know or hasn't figured out how to make money from social media or doesn't know how to measure how to do that. But I think he's, um, uh, he's, a, he's a good example and certainly a good point that uh, producers could look at as someone and the degree of um, uh, attentiveness and responsiveness you need to have to be any good at social media. But basically, this is this generation, how many wine producers have actually got a social media manager who is relevant or knows about the wants and needs of millennials. I don't know that there are too many. Yeah. I mean, referencing Jason Haas, I've messaged with him directly and I was like, I was really surprised. He's like, this is Jason, like replying on the Tablas Creek Instagram. And I was like, that's awesome. And so we had an exchange and we're talking about, you know, potentially doing an episode or things like that together. But the fact that he was responsive on that was is huge. And a lot of times people disconnect it and give it to a social media manager or someone who doesn't know the brand as well. And he's like, no, I, this is this is my brand. I'm, I'm on top of it because I want to be the front line for consumers, which is what people should be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I agree 100%. He's, a, he's really good. You know, I mean, I, I still think that there's, uh, for whatever reason, and unfortunately, there's this kind of collective uh, approach. When, when people don't know what to do, they look at what others are doing but they don't know if what others are doing is doing uh, are doing well. So there's been this focus in by wine producers. Oh, everyone else is talking about their wines or they're talking about their terroir or their history or they're trying to tag a, um, a wine critic or whatever. Critics don't have the same influence they used to. They have everyone's a critic, you know, I mean, all of these challenges. So I think wine really just has to go about, they just need to recognise that social is a brilliant way to develop the awareness of their brand. And if they can get that awareness out there by um, uh, by talking about things that appeal to people in addition to their wine, they'll have a far more receptive audience than having constant selling messages or, or fog warning their own brand, which pretty much just turns everyone off. So, so that brings up an interesting point, and Robert and I debate all the time around, so there's building awareness. Eventually, awareness needs to translate into sales, otherwise you don't have a business, right? So what are the marketing messages that appeal to millennials? Is it, is it just social media, or how do the traditional things like the magazine, press, critics, events, or other things play into it? What, what are the, what's the best ROI, if you will, for wineries to attract millennials? Millennials have a uh, have a really strong attachment to the people who represent their interests. So it's not just the brands; it's that you've got to have the people behind it who back them up as well. I, I think that the, the messages need to be that wine is a part of your lifestyle. It's part of it's part of the category. It's not the focus. You know, I mean, 
Xs, they were probably uh, a generation that was experimental and was keen to kind of make wine a focus. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm myself sure I'm a wine person, but even amongst friends, it was like, okay, we're wanting to try this style or we wanted to do this, so I'll have a few of them and, and just check out what worked. I don't think millennials at that point, and I don't know that that's a progression or even a direction they'll take. They're more interested in uh, trying something which reflects them rather than is recognizing the diversity in the different styles. So I think if them, uh, what's, what's going to be, uh, what's going to resonate with them are those brands that reflect the different interests of the, um, uh, of the millennials collectively. And, you know, I mean, the social values are a really keen point. Do you focus on non or low alcohol wines? It's certainly been creating an interest. How much of it is driven as a base of the industry responding to regulation, um, regulation um, the changes and how much of it is actually driven by the consumers, I don't know. But that's certainly something which would be worthwhile um, exploring. But I think where wine um, gets it wrong and what they can definitely do, the simplest thing they can do, start asking questions. Ask those questions that are interesting to them. They're too busy talking, um, focusing on the spiel and trying to sell something. You know, I mean, you, you said, um, Peter, this, uh, this idea that if you can't turn awareness into sales, you're not doing it. I think there's, there's too short an expectation of I've got awareness, therefore I'm making the sale. Making the sale. Wine isn't very good at measuring that willingness or that interest from the consumer. I, I mean, myself, I, I deliberately, whenever I visited the tasting room, I try to um, visit without notifying who I am because as soon as people know you're in wine or you're a wine business educator or a professor, you get treated like a VIP. You don't get the real experience. So, I mean, my wine business students, they were constantly telling me that they can't understand what I'm talking about, this, some of this feeling of alienation that consumers had. And because they're wine business students, they've got no money. If they go to a tasting room, the first thing they lead with is, I'm a wine business student, so they get free tastings. And as soon as they do that, they get the VIP treatment. So they don't know what it's like for the average consumer. So I'm very keen to kind of get that experience. And every time I go to a wine, um, a wine tasting room, I walk away thinking they didn't ask me any questions. They don't know anything about me. They don't know anything about my background and my experience because as soon as I turned up, the first thing they said is, what can you taste? What are we interested in? What would you like to buy? And then they get surprised when I didn't want to sign up for the wine club. I only wanted to buy a bottle. Uh, I mean, I pretty much always buy something I feel obliged to, but I'm walking away from there going, they had so much opportunity to find out what I would have or could have been interested in, what other events they've got there at the establishment, what features they've got that could attract me to bring other people later that they just didn't focus on because they're constantly focusing on the sale. So I think there's that, I mean, there's the, they're just not aware. Wine's not very good at utilising the sales funnel the way it should be done. And for millennials, Ask them questions. They will tell you what they like if they feel that you are receptive to them and you're interested in what their um, in what their behaviour is. So it's something you can use to um, to develop products that are more interesting to them. And that's basically, I think, where wine gets it wrong. They're too busy focusing on themselves as producers and the value of their product that they've put together before even establishing if it's something of value for their customer base. And millennials are very keen to be to they're very keen to be noticed and recognized. So ask them. That's a, that, that's a very simple thing that all producers can take on board. But in terms of marketing tactics or channels, are there better marketing channels that are that millennials are more receptive to than others? Or more active on? 
Yeah, I think I'm a, in addition to social media, I'm just focused on that. I think that'd be a good starting point. I'm pretty sure that the millennials are more interested in the retail channels that are with the smaller producers or that have uh, an experience that's back them back uh, uh, that's backing them up. I don't know the numbers. I haven't looked at them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually a higher representation at a Whole Foods, for example, because it's almost like an experience when you walk in there. You know, I mean, everything's um, uh, everything's pretty, everything's laid out in different areas so you can have a unique experience each time you go there. There's a diversity of, of small producers. Sure, there's a price premium associated with it. I mean, it's, you know, I'm pretty sure the pejorative term for Whole Foods is whole paycheck. But, you know, I mean, millennials are comfortable if they're paying that and supporting producers, um, you know, market them. Uh, I, I remember, I don't know how possible this is over here, but I remember every time I'd go to a little a town in Europe, not just France, but in Europe, they'd always have their markets and the markets would always have small producers having tastings there. You'd have the farmer owned um, experience. That, that authenticity just can't be, you know, it can't be manufactured. I remember learning a, a valuable joke, but lesson in marketing. You know, I mean, sincerity, once you can fake that, you've got it made. And it pretty much just um, summarizes uh, the expectation in previous generations. The newer generation, they want that experience. They're so disconnected um, uh, from how far the wine's gone from uh, growing in the, uh, growing from grapes in the vineyard to being put into their glass that any experience that can kind of reduce that pathway is something that um, I think would resonate really positively with the millennials. So uh, collective events, regional events, um, uh, something social, something that gives them more than just the wine. So anything that's um, wine-oriented has to have some sort of social element, which might include um, a food or it might include uh, market um, market products or it might include, you know, a dance fest or it might include, you know, I mean, the use of social media. You've got um, you've got establishments which are being built today, restaurants, for example. They have their Instagram corner or they have their, you know, their, their Facebookable feature or whatever it might be. And these are the sorts of things wine producers, we've got, I think it was Macrosti. They have like uh, something like twelve different locations just within their facility to represent a different uh, environment and different event when people turn up for tasting. And that's a great thing. Imagine if you've got uh, if you're a millennial, you have a great experience at number one. All of a sudden, you've got a passport and said, "Hey, how many of these have you recorded? Come back and um, see what the experience is like in this location or with these people or at this time." And you've got. 11 other times they are wanting to come back. And it's a really simple, really simple initiative is something to adopt. But, um, but wine isn't thinking that way. They're focusing far more on the product. Do things like that. We'll get more people interested. Yeah, having those little, like, go to this location for this Instagrammable moment at your winery, which already is beautiful anyways, but queuing that up for them is, is really interesting. Oh, and by the way, tag us. You know, little things like that are huge. There seem to be a few wine marketing trends that are targeted at millennials. I was wondering if we could do a quick round table and get some hot takes on these. And I'd love to get Peter as well. And I'll chime in if, if I have anything to add. So augmented reality, 19 crimes. What's your take on that for millennials as a marketing trend? Brilliant. Yeah, in, in, in a word, it's, I mean, it's really simple. Yes, it's expensive to get into. As uh, more producers get into it, the uh, cost of adoption is plummeting. So I think it's something, it, re- it just represents a format, a medium which is of interest to millennials. And I would be not surprised in the, lo- in the slightest if 19 Crimes was over-indexing with them, uh, having popularity with millennials. Particularly recently, they've got Snoop Dogg and now he's launching Rosé. I haven't seen the numbers, but I think they're what they're doing with that um, and using augmented reality is great. It's, but again, it's beyond the wine. A number of other smaller producers that are focused on trying to do augmented reality, they've focused on it's all about the tradition, our history. We have vineyards. 
happy. I mean, the image of a drone flying over a vineyard, just kill it, dude. You know, I mean, we, we, we don't need we don't need that anymore. Uh, everyone's seen it to death. Try something. Try something a bit different. That was exactly what I was thinking. I was like, 19 Crimes is great for storytelling, but if if your AR is just a drone flying over the vineyard, well, like, hey, that's like anything else. Yeah. Okay, Peter, I'm going to go to you first. Natural slash clean wines, hot take for millennials. I, I think it's a good way of premiumizing the industry, right? So you're basically selling a $5 wine for $10 perhaps, or $10 for 20, just by just like a lot of foods have a label that's a vegan or, or, you know, like tortilla chips are vegan. It's like, of course, (laughs) or or they're gluten-free or whatever it is. Like, yes, of course. (laughs) And so it's like taking the same product, effectively slapping a a different label on and buying more wine. I don't think it works at the, at the higher end. Once you're getting a fine wine, I think it's already assumed and not not part of it. Damien, hot take on natural and clean wines? Yeah, I, I agree with what Peter said. I think there's uh, uh, the the unfortunate thing is that you've got many, as you said, Peter, the high end and particularly the wine enthusiasts and those who are anyone who's got letters after their name that's associated with wine has been very quick to um, uh, to uh, basically take down the initiative. But I think that that honestly, I think that shows a disconnect between them, uh, between the reality, whether it's natural, uh, a natural wine, less so. I think there's um, uh, the, the risk with natural wine, great concept, but because of the inherent variability with the product, because there's no consistency, it's harder for people to come into and adopt. And I, I look at the same sort of thing with sour beers. I remember my first sour beer, absolutely outstanding. And then I've had like four or five since then. And I've got, why am I drinking this stuff? And so basically it's, 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 it's kept me away from the category. Natural wine runs the same risk with that sort of thing. Clean wine is relatively new, a couple of high profile celebrity producers are behind it. And I think it's, um, it's brilliant, but is it the clean image that's selling it or is it the celebrity? Difficult, um, a difficult thing to, um, to, to pan out when you've got both behind the brand. It'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think the concept and it's, it's an easy message to convey and for people to talk about. So I think that um, that has some real advantages to it, but it uh, runs the risk of, uh, of you know, letting the, um, the tail wag the dog. If the enthusiasts turn around and say it's a disaster, we have to legislate. I think it's just basically getting, I think it's killing something that's been successful. And what are your thoughts on low alcohol, no alcohol, low sugar wines? I mentioned this earlier. I think as a, um, as a category, I think there's some, uh, there's, uh, some future in it. There's definitely an interest and it's a way to get them at people who are risk averse or just want to or want to be very careful with their consumption as a way to get them into the category. But uh, it needs to be something that leads on to, leads on to something else or has a, it has a purpose-built basis for attracting a particular category. I think it runs the risk if there are too many examples or two easy examples that don't have a good consumption experience they might get people into it but then that will end up being the reason they don't come to come into wine so the fear and the perception about about low alcohol no alcohol wine is that the taste suffers as a result if that's then borne out as being true by those who are coming into that category we'll lose people instead of getting more into it peter any thoughts yeah i think similar to like non-alcoholic beer Right. It's it's a it fits a certain part of the market, but it's it's not it's not going to dominate the market. Yeah. Okay. Celebrity wines. Peter, thoughts on celebrity wines? I think they're going to grow to Damien's point around. It's about the storytelling and the experience and the tie to a person. Celebrity wines are are your tie to a person and they're just a tie at a bigger scale with a bigger audience. And so I think 
more people, I think wine is going to fragment. If, if millennials continue to buy around people and the people who are making it, then you're going to have more and more celebrity wines and you'll just have a fragmentation across the sector of people buying the people they follow and believe in. Damien, what do you think? I think you'd be crazy not to if you've got access to it. Look what Brangelina did with Merivale and pretty much uh, rosés were already growing, but they put Provence um, uh, rosés on the map. Then you've got, uh, you know, I mean, you look at what uh, uh, happened with uh, Ace, Ace of Spades. Didn't even know that existed until um, until you know you had uh, I think it was God, was it Jay Z? I hope Jay-Z, I'm not uh, yeah. Uh, yeah hope I'm not victimising the wrong rapper but yeah um, uh, Jay Z who turned around and was going I'm I'm a Cristal drinker until Cristal went yeah we we're not really sure and he's gone hey heard of Ace of Spades you have now you know I mean so so whether it's at the top or the entry level of the market I think celebrity uh, it definitely works and it could be a really good way for the um, for the industry to kind of drive uh, drive some trends in the future. I have one caveat to that. I believe that millennials will be able to discern people who are just slapping their name on a bottle as an endorsement without actually being involved. So, you know, when you look at what Pink's doing, she seems to be doing it right. Brad Brad Pitt now has a champagne as well. Like they seem to be very involved to some extent in terms of making some decisions. So I think that I think that people who are just putting a name on there without actually any you know, inclusion, inclusion in the decision-making or being effectively involved in it, I think will be weeded out fairly quickly. The thing I'd add to that as well, a great example and a really good disclaimer there, Robert, because you've got great case in point, Kim Kardashian. She got behind a vodka brand, which I won't mention uh, for, for exactly the same reason. And when it was found out that she didn't drink alcohol at all, that brand was basically boycotted overnight. So yeah, exactly. It needs to be, it needs to be authentic. There needs to be a vested interest in it. And if you look at um, tequila, for example, Casamigos, when you've got some, uh, that's worked out really well, as is um, with Mescal. You've got um, Aaron Paul and uh, Brian Cranston um, working on number Dos, uh, oh, what's it called? I can't even remember the brand now. I've, 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 I've tagged the celebrities that have gotten their brand. So, you know, that's a, but there, there are examples. They are involved in production. That, that sort of thing works out. So you're absolutely right. It needs to be authentic, not just slapped on. You don't even need to know the brand name and you'll, you can find that, that, yeah. that on the dos, internet. Dos right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's the thing is like the ones that the ones where it's not like just their name on the label. Like you have like Miraval doesn't say Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie on it. It's in, in, in Pink's, Rosé isn't even pink. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I think that there's a, I think that there's, it's interesting because the people will know and it doesn't have to be front and center. Okay. So wrapping up with every guest, Damien, we always ask them for a lasting trend in a fizzing fad. So, you know, obviously lasting trend is something that you see will carry on in perpetuity, which you're well aware of with all your research and fizzing fad is something that you is happening now, but you think is going to be fading away in the near future or already starting to fade. What do you think those are for marketing to millennials or wine for the wine industry? I think the wine industry has to focus on, it has to, has to understand how to speak millennial. That's a re- really the starting point. And I think that uh, will have a big impact on the, on the long-term viability of the industry. We've, we've seen in recent years that wine's struggling to attract new consumers and that's uh, that with the stagnation in the growth of uh, uh, wine consumer numbers. So that's something that needs to be addressed. And so I would argue that uh, as wine, wine has to evolve to be, um, to be more, representative of what the new consumer is interested in. And I think um, uh, wine can do it. It's just that it has to have a willingness and a collective approach to it. And unfortunately, that's something that wine historically hasn't shown a preponderance to get into. So I'm, I'm concerned about that, but I think that's, um, that's really where we have to head. I am still, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's going to be a great fad, but I'm still utterly shocked 
that uh, the wine industry in the US hasn't um, looked into or, or taken seriously sparkling reds for whatever reason, uh, because if you look in recent years, what have been two of the biggest growing categories by volume? Sparkling wines, um, uh, red blends. You've got them basically, uh, for whatever reason, it's a, um, it's a category that either has poor perception, has um, uh, a lack of support in the distribution channel. I would think that's something that, um, that consumers would really get into, particularly around Thanksgiving. There's nothing better that goes with turkey than sparkling red wine. So, so I'm, I, I don't know why that hasn't um, taken off, but I actually think in the short term, you're still looking at um, uh, you're still looking at uh, rosé wines. There's still uh, I still think there's a fair bit of growth to go in that category. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. But I think there's going to be a shakeout both in um, color and um, color and style, which um, uh, which which will which will struggle. And I think Sauvignon Blanc has still got a fair bit um, a fair bit of running um, uh, to go. It's uh, I know New Zealand is absolutely petrified about the leverage they've got in Sauvignon Blanc sales. I don't think that's going to disappear anytime soon, but I think that that's really something which uh, that's really something which I think is sticking around. But uh, aside from that, I think we'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens post-pandemic to see if people have actually changed their um, changed their patterns. I would hope that augmented re- um, virtual reality gets um, taken up by the wine industry, and I would hope there's a big focus on the use of electronic means to, to communicate with consumers. Awesome. Wow, we covered a lot of topics. I think this is going to be a great episode. Demi, I want to thank... Peter and I want to thank you for your time and all your insights on how to market to millennials. I think this will be uh, super valuable for a lot of our audience. I've certainly appreciated being invited and hope you've got what, um, what you need. Look forward to uh, listening to the next edition of X, X Chateau. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.